cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, author, academic, former leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, and leader of the official opposition from 2008 to 2011, and currently the president of the Central European University. He's the Privy Council and Order of Canada recipient. It's the Honorable Michael Ignatiev. It's been quite the year. How well do you think that we as a society treated COVID-19? And what would you maybe have done differently than, let's say, Justin Trudeau? <laughs> um, I've thought about this a bit. Um, I think that uh, ex-post, uh, everybody's a genius. Ex-ante, nobody knows what the hell's going to happen. Um I think that uh, it's easy to criticize, not just Trudeau, but it's easy to criticize lots of people. Um, it's easy to criticize people who actually did things right. Here's a surprise. Uh, Donald Trump is my, is, is my idea of everything in politics I hate, but he got warp speed going and, and uh, threw everything at getting um, vaccination um, developed and... Um, Biden's getting the credit, but uh, the Trump has to get some credit for um, authorizing warp speed, which had a very positive effect. So, so it's very difficult. And and actually, evaluation of politicians changes over time. If you'd asked me this question in in May last year, I would have said uh, Angela Merkel was doing the best job of any major world leader, and I would have sung the praises of lots of. Um, great female leaders around the world. But look at uh, Angela now in uh, April 2021 um, with uh, vaccination rates that are uh, really staggeringly low in Germany. I mean, 10% or something of the population is vaccinated compared to 25 in the States and, you know, um, close to 35, 40 in, in Britain. <laughs> Don't quote, you know, my, my numbers may be wrong, but the magnitudes are right. Um, Germany is in very, very difficult uh, situation. And so your evaluation of leaders at any given time is changing. Um, Boris Johnson looked terrible last summer uh, and last autumn, and now looks terrific because the vaccination, um, he got, he made one decision that was right, which was to give the vaccination thing to a venture capitalist woman named I can't remember Mrs. Bingham and Mrs. Bingham is a ball of fire and she just broke all the rules and, and got um, these vaccinations uh, delivered on time. So it's very, very hard. I mean, I think there's some stable leaders who've proven out. Jacinda Ardern has done a great job. The, the leader in Taiwan has done a terrific job. Um, my university is just about to give a prize to a minister of health in Kerala in a province, a state in India, who's done a fantastic job keeping the incidence of COVID low in a very poor country. Why? Because they have a great public health infrastructure. So, and it's significant, I think, that some of the best leadership has been female, and I don't, I don't know why. I, I, I'm, I have no idea why, but the three examples I gave you are, are women leaders who seem to grasp the importance of this, focused on it early. Uh, and we're unafraid to tell people stuff they didn't want to hear. So um, it's a fan the, the COVID-19 um, 
has been a kind of master class in good politics and terrible politics. And it's very interesting to watch. I'm glad that you mentioned giving credit where credit is due. Do you feel like we as a society don't really do that enough anymore? Do you think that we really are as divided as the media maybe wants us to be? Um, I think we're pretty divided, um, but I but I think, uh, and that's an, another subject. In terms of getting credit, I, I think that politicians, um, we shouldn't worry about whether politicians get credit or not. I mean, they soak up any credit they can get and walk around proclaiming themselves as heroes. So we don't need to worry about politicians. Um, but I, I think that uh, um, that's why I went out of my way to say this thing about Trump. I mean, I, as I say, I detest him as a politician, but I think there was one very good decision, which was just warp speed. And, and I think that's really had an effect in the States. And so, yeah, why not say it? Uh, do you find that you still have a kinship to Canadian politics or do you kind of try to distance yourself a little bit as much as you can from the goings on back home now? I, uh, I, um, wake up every morning and read the globe and mail. So yeah, I follow it. Sure. And, um, I've got a lot of friends back home and, um, you know, one of the curious things about politics is everybody outside politics thinks, you know, that that famous story is true. You know, if you're in politics and you want a friend, you know, get yourself a dog because there are no friends in politics. It's not true. Um, I'm very struck 10 years on now that I'm completely out of it. I have no connection to anybody in politics. I still have an immense network of people who worked for me and worked with me um, in that period 10 years ago. And so I get a lot of political information from them and they're wonderful friends and they're across the country. And um, so I, I kind of keep my ear to the ground a little bit with them. They were all young people. They were in their 20s and now they're in their 30s. And some of them are really pretty important in the government. And they, uh, you'll be pleased to know they don't tell me anything indiscreet, but you know, it, it, it keeps me in touch in that way. What do you feel like you learned the most as your time as the Liberal leader of Canada? Oh, I learned a lot. Sure. I learned, I learned uh, a lot about what I was bad at. You know, I mean, I, I'd had a successful life at a number of things and I turned out in politics that I thought I, I would be pretty good at lots of things. And it turned out to be not so great at some things. Um, and, um, and then I, you know, so, so yeah, you learn a lot. I, I think you learn more from failure than from success in life. And um, I think that's good for you. I don't, I don't feel tragic about it. I don't feel, I learned some very positive lessons. And I also, you know, as I said before, you know, the friendships I made in politics are still there and um, they're very valuable to me. Um, so um, I don't look back on it as a, you know, terrible time. I look back on it as a kind of amazing time, uh, partly also because Canada is such a, unbelievable country. I mean, it is the only country in the world where you get up in the morning in Ottawa and you get on a flight and you fly to Calgary, which is a long haul. And then you take another flight to Yellowknife and then you fly another flight up to the Arctic Circle and you, you know, have a meeting with, with uh, some, uh, some of our Inuit brothers and sisters. And then you get on a flight and go back down to, to Vancouver and end up uh, sitting cross-legged on a floor in a in a Sikh temple, uh, you know, having vegetarian food 
And that's all in one day in Canada. I mean, it's just, I can't tell you. It's just, there's very few other countries in the world where that is the experience of being a political leader. And it's unforgettable. It changes you for life. I really hope that you do go down as as one of the <laughs> as one of the best politicians that we had. I I truly do think that you are incredibly underrated especially within the West and I hope that as time goes on people recognize what you did do. So I I, I hope that it happens. <laughs> well that's kind of, that's kind of I I certainly um we didn't get many votes out west. Liberals often don't but um it's such a great such a great part of the country. I have a very emotional feeling about the landscape, um, you know, and in Alberta, uh, and also in a um, uh, particular favorite is the Capel Valley in Saskatchewan in mid July. It'd be hard to find a more beautiful place in the whole world. So I, you know, I have a, I have a, you know, big, big, I have some nostalgia for that. I'm very happy living in Europe. I like it, but I still, I still, I miss some of the landscape in Canada. I, I miss the big sky. There's no question. There's no big sky here. The big sky is a thing in, in the prairies. It just, you never forget. Why do you think that progressive politics are such a dirty word to so many people across North America? Well, I think most people are, are um, conservative in a good sense. That is, they are they are focused on real things, which are you know, their families, their work, their marriages, the people they really care about. Um, they are suspicious of people who come and promise them, you know, progressive change. They're not so sure that's in their interest. They're not so sure that it can be done efficiently or effectively. So there's a lot of skepticism about progressive politics, but equally there's a great sus um, suspicion of um, hard right um, conservative I know best politics. It's the same mistake on one on both ends of the political spectrum. I know best, I'm gonna tell you um, what's gonna make your life better. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's just a problem. I, I think that the country is, is small c conservative, as I say, in a good sense. It votes liberals, but, but a smart liberal government is always attentive to the, the small c conservative quality of of Canadian life. Um, and a lot of this has to do with big things about us. You know, we're, we're, we're actually a very small country stretched out across an incredibly wide landmass. We are Aboriginals. We are immigrants. We are Quebecois. We speak French. We speak all the languages in the world. We're stretched out in this kind of hundred kilometer band across the northern frontier of the United States. Um, we know this is fragile. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that one of the, the common instincts of Canadians is caution for very good reasons. We're embarked on an incredible political experiment to hold this thing together from sea to sea to sea, and we know it's not easy. And, um, and everybody has veto power in the system, and that's, that's appropriate. I mean, Westerners get infuriated at the power that Quebec has in our federation, but hey guys, that's the deal. I mean, that's that's what we're made of, you know, and 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 Atlantic Canada feels left out of the prosperity of the central and that, you know, that's an old fact in the country. And and um, uh, we have other divisions that, you know, 
Cal Alberta is living through right at the moment. You, you produce the energy on which a tremendous amount of our national wealth depends. Uh, but the rest of the country wants to go green faster than you do. Um, uh, the green agenda is not this big uniting progressive cause that pulls us all together. It's the most divisive issue in Canadian politics, right? So, you know, you come in there as a progressive politician with a green agenda and you just divide people. And so the, the challenge that, that someone like me who, you know, I'm, I'm a small C conservative in a lot of things, but I, I, I believe that we've got to do something about climate change. I believe we've got to do something about some key social justice issues, but you've got to bring people along. Being in politics taught me just how very difficult it is to keep everybody in the same tent. You know, I, I mean, I can give you stories about being in the caucus. Um, one of the great things about being in the liberal caucus was that we had representation right across the country from every region of the country. And, and it's, you know, 115 men and women um, from very different backgrounds. And every Wednesday we would meet and, you know, a progressive in Toronto would get up and say, and I'm a progressive from Toronto, so I believe this, that we got to have more gun control. And the guy from Yukon would get up and say, you, you, you put that gun control stuff through and I can kiss my seat goodbye forever. Uh, you won't get a vote anywhere north of, you know, north of, you know, the American border if you do gun control. So you learn, you learn, yeah, I mean, this is our country, you know, and, and, and uh, so you have to be the kind of progressive politician who gets some gun control to keep innocent people being slaughtered while respecting the rights that people have to, you know, have long guns and uh, protect their farming property and, and shoot for fun and aboriginals for whom, you know, country food's important. All this is part of, that's one issue and you can just, it, it, that one issue incorporates all the fissures and divisions in our country. And a politician has to understand that and, and work with it. And um, I had some pretty, you know, pretty tough lessons in, in trying to understand that stuff. But the, the, the job is not to kind of split the difference, but to find a path in there in which the people in Toronto get something that protects them while you respect and don't abridge the rights of, of people to, to use weapons lawfully. Just very difficult. Um, all of the issues are difficult. There isn't, there, all of the issues are like that. And the climate, the, the green stuff is exactly the same. Um, and sometimes what I don't like about progressive politics is when people talk about the guys working on the rigs and the oil sands as if they weren't your fellow citizens. They're your fellow citizens. I mean, you, you know, they, they got to vote the same way you do. So you, you can't just pretend, oh, nobody gets burned by this policy. Yeah, they do get burned. It's their jobs. It's their mortgages. You know, so you've got to find a way in which you get climate change policies that don't fracture the Federation of Canada. I mean, there are some things that are actually more important than climate change. And one of them is national unity, right? I mean, all this is standard stuff. I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know, but this is, these are the rules of the road in Canadian politics, and you have to learn to respect them. Where do you see progressive politics going from here then? 
Well, a lot more listening. Um, uh, I'm, I'm old school on that. I, I, you know, I wasn't in politics more than five and a half years, but the best, best times were just listening, listening, learning, you know, just pulling the country into you. So it's kind of in your, in your heart and soul. Um, I think that's very important. Just humility, you know, uh, don't come out of Toronto or Montreal or Calgary thinking you, you got the answers. You, you've got to learn. You've got to take a, a, a learning course in, 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 in politics to, to be successful. And I came out with a tremendous amount of respect for the people who are lifers. I was never a lifer. But one of the good things about some of the lifers is that they, they got a sense of the country that was just intuitive. I didn't always agree with Jean Chrétien, for example, but and Chrétien made his mistakes. But the one thing about him is he had a kind of amazing ear for coming, kind of instinct. You know, he kind of he could feel the weather turn. You know, before anybody else. You know, I mean, that's pretty. That that. So look, that's not a model for progressive politics because Jean Chrétien wasn't really a, a progressive. He's, a, I think, a great Canadian, but I wouldn't describe him as a progressive politician. So progressive politics, look, let, let's, let's try and answer your question seriously. Um, first of all, equality, you know, equality. Um, you, you can't, you know, I, I saw things on, uh, in Aboriginal communities that just, I've never forgotten. I was so shocked by, on the one hand, and on the other hand, I saw some unbelievably progressive, go-ahead, dynamic Aboriginal communities, particularly in the interior of BC, for example. Um, so we've got to find out what works in Aboriginal communities. We've got to listen to the successes and then learn from those successes and figure out what, what um, can be done in um, communities that are failing. And, and you know, non-Aboriginal Canada doesn't bear all the responsibility. The trick is to responsibilize, to say, listen, you know, here are the resources, but you have to get honest, govern, self-governing communities that are proud, that look after their kids with strong family structures and strong values. And it is up to you. We will not hold you back. We're not we're not denying that there has been racism. We're not denying that there's systemic injustice, but you also have to grab responsibility as a community and turn things around. And I've seen Aboriginal communities where that, that is happening and it's inspiring to see. So that's, you know, and then there's all the other equality issues. You know, the, the people left behind in Canada are not just Aboriginals. They're white working class kids who don't get to university. They're, they're, uh, uh, you know, immigrant uh, families who just aren't able to break through into the mainstream of Canadian life. There are northern communities that are isolated and left out. We've got a lot of justice work to do, and that's this—that's the core business of progressive politics. The other piece of it is, I think, is I think an energy transition. Um, I, I think we need to start, or you know progressively, gently, and in my view, through a carbon tax, get us um, towards a, uh, an energy transition that doesn't destroy the West, you know, that doesn't, you know, you know, devastate people's lives and economies, but gets us on a path in which we start to think, wow, this is, this is exciting and this is not dividing us. And so that's another 
part of it. Um, I think uh, there are also some deep issues that progressives don't usually talk about, which is about, you know, family and, and um, you know, family structure and just make sure simple stuff gets done. Like, you know, kids learn what good values are, learn respect for their parents, learn respect for their teachers, learn respect for cops, learn respect for other people who are different. Um, uh, you know, and politics can't do all of that, but politics needs to put a floor under families so they can handle the, the pressures they're under. I, I think there's a, a um, I sometimes think that conservatives of the conservative party have a firmer grasp of the importance of family values than many liberal progressives. I think uh, we're, we're all troubled by social change and what it's doing to our children and what the digital world is doing to our children. And, and I, I think a progressive politician wants to say, yeah, we, we want, you know, we want families that care and love each other and look after each other right to the very end. The one thing we think about families, if you're progressive, is that there are all kinds of families that work really well. I know some, I have some friends who are devoted um, gay couples who have, are absolute examples of good marriages, and they're pretty wonderful parents as well, without wanting to be sentimental, you know, and it just, it takes all kinds, it takes all kinds. And we need, and, and, and a progressive has the sense it takes all kinds. You, you, and the objective is to have children who grow up knowing what respect is, knowing what obedience is, knowing what um, defending themselves and expressing themselves is, standing up for themselves. And all that stuff, politics is at the edge of, and all you can do is kind of help families to, to, to do their job. So I guess to, to sum it up all, there's the equality issue. There, there's the equality issue. There's the uh, energy transition issue. And I think there's the family issue. And I think those are the core of, of, of politics. You know, and then, you know, because I'm a, you know, because I'm an international person, there's another core, which is being good citizens in the world. But that's, I've gone on too long, so I'm going to stop now. You have definitely not gone on too long. <laughs> you would never go on too long on this. But the U, uh, I want to switch to climate change just for a second because you brought it up. The UN's IPCC has stated we have 10 to 12 years to fundamentally change what we're doing in terms of our behavior to climate. I'm curious if you think it's not already a little too late. And do you see a path forward at this point? Um. Yeah, I'd be a damn fool to take on the IPCC. You know, they're very distinguished climate scientists. And um, what I would take what I would take on, what I would respectfully disagree with, is that you know, <laughs> we've run out of time. We're all going to die. Everything's hopeless. You know, I, I just don't believe that. Um, you know, what I what I see it at my age is that in fifty years there's been a revolution in environmental consciousness around the world. There has been a, there, we are in the midst of an energy transition, which in 10, 15 years will move us massively away from fossil fuels. It's happening. Um, uh, we, we are, we are on, on the cusp, I think, of 
energy solutions that will just um, uh, shut down um, the growth of CO2 emissions. And in advanced developed economies, Western Europe, for example, CO2 emissions are plateauing. They're still surging uh, in, in developing societies and in China and places. But in advanced societies that are in the midst of this transition, you can begin to see the effects right now. And I think there isn't a human being alive, especially not in the younger generation, who isn't aware what a challenge this is. Well, that's a huge political fact. It means that no politician can get up and, and, and pretend as you could 15 years ago that, you know, the science isn't clear and, you know, I'm not going to do anything. And every politician who comes out of the gate now, whether you're conservative, liberal, NDP, whatever, knows that climate change is a serious business. It's not a kind of middle-class little thing that we just add to the end of our manifesto. If you're not clear about that, you're, you're nowhere in politics. And, and, the, and the, as I've said before, the, the difficulty in Canada is that this is a national unity issue. This is the most divisive thing we've got to deal with. And, and you have to always, you can't sit there and moralize and give people little lectures. You've got to pull people together and get them to understand we're talking about your kids too. You know, I mean, it's, that's what it's about. I, I'm not, I don't believe the doomsayers. What I, what I actually think is that because the other thing a liberal believes, he believes in markets. You know, I believe in capitalism. Market signaling can change behavior very quickly. We put a progressively rising carbon tax that's simple. Tax what you burn, not what you earn. You know, revenue neutral in that sense. It can have escalating good effects uh, that will assist the transition. So I'm not pessimistic because I believe in market incentives and simple, clear, uh, public policy can can change this very, 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 very fast and in time. But we've got to get going, and and we can't lie to each other. Um, we, you know, we we. I, I think there's quite a lot of lying about this in Canada. We we just got to be straight with each other, and uh, that's very difficult. But that's the task of leadership. Can you tell me a little bit about your time at the CEU? And would you say that you're maybe the most hopeful right now than you've been in a long time about the state of education and even the youth? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the president and director of uh, a small university in Central Europe. I'm in Vienna and Budapest. Um, it's a wonderful institution. It, it's very high quality graduate school in the social sciences and humanities, but it's small. I mean, it's like 1,300 students. Um, and we were thrown out of Hungary by Viktor Orban, an authoritarian populist. Um, and that taught me, in fact, um, how important education is. We were, we were so troublesome to this regime. They couldn't stand to have a free institution in their capital city. They just had to get us out. And so now we're in Vienna and we're very happy there and we're well-funded and we're, we're going gangbusters. But it did teach me um, how central um, free universities are for a free society. I mean, it's just, you know, we, we take it for granted. We think, we think democracy is just free elections or free press or something. 
No, democracy is free institutions, self-governing institutions like universities that are, you know, train generations of students in democratic values. Uh, we're in the business of training citizens to be critical, to or you know, to be liberal, to be conservative, whatever you want. But, but citizens, people who care about their country and want it to be better. Have you noticed an even greater lack of political education amongst the youth? And do you think it's a disservice that we aren't teaching civics courses in North American K to twelve schools? Um, that's complicated. I, I seem to remember civics classes when I was in K to 12 way, way back. And I think it's not a bad thing, but um, I think the disengagement of youth is sometimes, um, uh, frankly, we're too indulgent of it. Um, in the 2007 election, I seem to remember that of the eligible voters, 18 to 30, or is it 18 to 25, some slice, that young vote, only 20% of them bothered to show up and vote. Now, maybe that was because they thought it was a boring election. It was actually an election in which we ran on a, on a green shift. We got punished politically, but I'm rather proud of the fact that we ran on a, on a carbon tax. And we were, it was the first time the Liberal Party ran on a carbon tax. And I think it was a, a courageous and good thing to do. Um, but most of the kids who could have helped us stayed home. They thought, who cares? So I'm not, I don't like sitting and viewing this business about the youth vote and saying, oh, it's all our fault. They, you know, it's all the politicians' fault or it's all the universities' fault or all the schools' fault. No, the kids have got to wake up. I mean, it, you, know, you know, wake up, show up, vote. Um, you know, it's, it's critical to democracy, and it is worrying when you look at the long secular trend um, from um, the 1960s through to 2020. We overall turnout in Canadian elections has declined from something like 80, 85% in the 60s, way down. I, I, I think in that 2007 election, the voter turnout was under 60%. Now that's a 20% drop and it's a generational change. And by generational, I mean that there is a generation that grows up thinking voting. I mean, why bother? Right. And there was a previous generation that just thought voting was part of being a citizen. And you see this in, in the dynamics of electoral politics, you know, any, retirement age person tends to show up and vote. And so the politicians go out and they knock on all the old people's homes and say, you know, vote and the, and they vote. And, and the conservatism in, in the good and bad sense of the elder voter has a big electoral effect. Well, do something about it. I mean, in, and we see what you can do. Um, Obama ran in 2008 and he looked at the electoral map and said, I've got to create a new electorate. I cannot become the first black president of the United States unless I get a new electorate, meaning I'm going to get a whole bunch of kids out who've never voted before. And he did. And in 2020, I think Mr. Biden understood similarly that he had to, he had to get some people out. And if he didn't get them out, he wasn't going to vote. So, you know, 
the under 30 vote in Canada has, has simply got to understand that if they want a certain kind of country, there's only one way to get it actually. And, and that's to do that thing where you mark a piece of paper with a ballot. There's just no other way. Everything else is just talk. Everything else is just sitting in a bar complaining. And you don't want to be that kind of person. You don't want to be a whiner. You want to, you know, be a citizen. How much of a challenge was it to run an institution like the Central European University during a lockdown? Oh, it was tough. Uh, it was it was not uh, great, uh, Robert. Um, universities, like all institutions, like like anything, are physical. You know, you you meet people in the corridor, you bump into them, you you kind of get a sense of how they're feeling from their look in their eyes, and you know, you kind of touch people and hug people and shout at people. You know, it's a that's that's institutional life is very physical and and the fact that you know at for 13 months now i've been sitting at in this room at this computer talking to my colleagues is is not great and i think it we're we're more tired we're more stressed we're more we have a sense that work has invaded our private lives much more i can't you know, there are so many calls with my staff in which I see some little kid running across the back of the shot. And particularly the women are trying to do their jobs and, you know, some kids come in and say, mom, help me with my homework. I mean, we're all feeling the strain of that. It's, 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 it's not good. And, it, and on the one hand here, you know, I'm going to do the liberal on the one hand, on the one there. On the one hand, we've all discovered, in fact, that you can do very good um, remote online learning. There's no question. I, and I, our university is going to do more online learning in the future because it allows us to reach constituencies that we couldn't reach otherwise. So that's the good side. The bad side is that there's simply no substitute for direct, personal, around-the-table uh, learning. I've been a classroom teacher all my life, and, and it's just it's it's an it's artisanal stuff. You 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 have to build a kind of relationship with individuals. You have to work with them. You have to listen to them. Learn. They've got to get a sense of trust with you, and all that is very physical and depends on physical presence. So, we're going to be back uh, in the classroom in September, and I'm going to be in the classroom next September. And I'm really looking forward to being around a table with students. You've had some pretty impactful work in the medium of television with Blood and Belonging and your screenplay work with the film 1919. Do you see film and television as mediums to essentially help provoke real change within a society? Oh, I think there's no no question. Um, let me give you a tiny example. I, me and, you know, 10 million other people have been watching this Netflix series called Stiesel, which is about Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem. It's the most unlikely possible subject for a, you know, three-part Netflix series, and it's completely fascinating. It's not voyeuristic. It's not condescending. It doesn't look down at Orthodox Jewish communities. I knew nothing about these communities. Um, but it's incredibly compelling. And, and my friends in Israel tell me that it's, it did have a real change in how secular Israelis began to look at these communities because they, I mean, Israeli society is deeply divided between secular and religious, but this series began to 
create a certain kind of dialogue between these two two communities and so that's a you know it's a positive thing and i think around the world people who regard you know orthodox jews with their you know curls and their and all this stuff and the women wearing all, you know all that stuff because they're a, a minority and they've been horribly persecuted uh, a series like this has a i think a good effect i mean it just it's it's a very moving real survey with and the key thing it says is some of the things that uh, Haridim are going through are absolutely universal and we share them and connect it, it it creates a real sense of human connection so that's a tiny example of something and i think there are other famous examples um um Ken Burns series on the Civil War was a was an event in the history of American reckoning with with uh, that and um, uh, David Attenborough's uh, series on life on Earth I think has has changed people's attitude towards nature in an absolutely fundamental way. I mean, he David Attenborough you know, at ninety five is the greatest living public educator. And he's had a real effect on people. So, sure, absolutely. Um, and there are millions of other, uh, you know, examples where um, representations of reality change your view of reality. I mean, I, you know, I, I I can think of dozens of examples of films that change that for me. So. Are you happy to see the current trend towards how we as a society are dealing with drugs through our legalization? Or do you kind of think places like Portland and Vancouver are going a tad too far with their leniencies? I, I'm not close enough to um, the Vancouver situation to comment. My, I, I'm old news in the sense that I remember going many times down to the east side, both when I, in the 70s, when I lived in Vancouver, and then later and being just horrified by the the drug culture down there, actually. Just, I, I mean, I'm one of these people who's very threatened by and up, made upset by people destroying themselves. I just, it's the one of, it's it, it just, I find it horribly painful to watch. And, and, and in some sense, I know this is a failing of mine. I just, I can't understand it. I just, I hate it. I, it. It causes fear and anxiety. So from that starting point, um, anything that um, um, manages this problem and treats addiction as a medical problem rather than a criminal offense gets my support. And then the dilemma is to make sure that if you manage it as a medical problem, you don't reproduce it, you don't increase it. Um, but you certainly don't want people to die from dirty needles. You don't want people to be locked up who've simply because they've lost control of their lives and lost control of the will to control their lives. And so I'm, I'm in favor of anything that uh, decriminalizes. I'm not crazy about you know, the legalization of marijuana. I remember when I was in politics, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, the resolution came forward every year from the young liberals to, to legalize marijuana. I wasn't 
particularly excited about it. I thought, um, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think marijuana is terrific. I think medical marijuana can have real effect in reducing pain, but I don't want, I don't want everybody kind of slightly out of it. You know, I want us all to be kind of talking to each other and enjoying each other's company and being, you know, and I don't want to sound like a prude. You know, I, I like a, I like a drink. I've had a joint. I don't, I, I, I don't want to moralize about it, but I just, you know, um, what I don't want is people going to jail because they've lost control of their lives and, and, and jail is a terrible place to deal with addiction. But I also don't want us to be a culture that lives by self-intoxication. I want, I want to live in a culture where, you know, we want to be with each other and we want to see straight and we want to see the world straight. And I sometimes, you know, that's just my small C conservatism, I guess. Looking back on your run against Stephen Harper and Jack Layton, would you say the, what would you say that you learned the most from both of those individuals? Um, well, I, both of them, uh, took me apart. Um, Harper sponsored the most expensive and elaborate campaign of personal destruction directed at a political leader in the history of Canadian politics. And, um, so what I learned from that is, is there's no point complaining about that. That's what he's, that's what a person like that is going to do, but you better get your retaliation in first. You better, you better fight. And I think there was something, what I learned is that I didn't fight hard enough. And I didn't say, you know, <laughs> Stephen, do, do, do you get to define who's a good Canadian here? Do you get to define who's a Canadian? I'm, I'm sorry. You just don't. You're the prime minister. You're not, God Almighty here. And so what you're doing to this guy, Ignatiev, is just out of line. You, you don't get to choose, you don't get to make that choice. And you don't get you you don't get to uh, to you know to um, impute motive. He didn't come back for you. He's just visiting. I wasn't just visiting. And I did come back because I love the country and wanted to serve. But I need to, you know, I can't expect him to play fair. He's not that kind of guy. But I needed to be much clearer in my response to that. Um, Jack Layton did something very similar, particularly in the national debate. And I didn't fire back quickly enough. And I, I, think, I think that's a, a failure and a weakness on my point. And I do not want to pretend I'm just too nice to do it. No, I should, if you're in politics, you need to defend yourself. You need to defend yourself. Boom. And I didn't, and, and I, I paid a very considerable price. It's just that, um, uh, you know, they define me and I should have defined me, you know, and had I defined me, um, I think, I don't know whether the result would have been different. I'm not exactly everybody's cup of tea, but I think it would, I, I think I would have done better. Sure. Well, finally, would you ever see yourself getting in the political ring again, or have all these years taught you that your home is kind of in academia? Um, I'm, I, I'm never going back into politics, partly just because I'm too old. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, definitely time for people who are younger. 
Um, I do want to encourage anybody who really has the bug to go in because it's an unforgettable experience and, and the country needs people, you know, conservative, liberal, socialist, whoever, we, we need you in there. Religious people, non-religious people, every immigrant group, every, get in there and, and, and make the country better. So I can say that and want to say that. And I, I think it, that has authority because it didn't turn out so well for me. So if I'm encouraging you to do it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you without any illusions. Uh, no, I'm I'm very happy to be out of it, and I think my strength is is as a is to be a teacher and a writer. So I'm doing more of that, and extremely happy to do it, and happy to talk to you as well. So thank you so much. Oh, you. What uh, what books can we expect from you coming up? Um, well, I here's a here's a curveball out of out of left field. Um, I've written a book called On Consolation, which is a, um, a book of essays about great works of consolation, um, going from um, the Psalms. I think everybody knows that if you're in a hotel alone at night, you reach in, there's the Gideon Bible, you can read the Psalms, and people have consoled themselves with the Psalms for centuries. So I have an essay about the Psalms. I have an essay about some pieces of music that have been very consoling. I've got uh, some um, uh, essays about the classics of consoling literature, just trying to understand how it is that human beings console themselves in the face of failure and loss and the death of loved ones. Um, it's very, very difficult to console yourself or to console someone else. So it's one of the most difficult things we do as human beings, but one of the most important. And so I just put together some essays about that. And I've had a fantastically good time doing it. I've just loved writing it. And it'll be out um, uh, sometime before Christmas in Canada. And um, I'll, I'll be in Canada to, to promote it. So I hope uh, I'll spread, I hope you can spread the word. And I hope uh, other, I hope uh, when it comes out, people enjoy reading it. Of course. Mr. Gnadiev, it was an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for taking, your, taking some time out of your day to come on. Uh, thank you, Robert. I enjoyed it. Uh, good luck to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This concludes our broadcast day.